Hello and welcome to Living Wow Feminist. Living Wow Feminist is a weekly podcast talking with feminists about the ups and downs, ins and outs, and the emotional rollercoaster ride of living a feminist life. I'm your host, feminist writer, researcher, and author, Jen Thorpe. Today on the podcast, I'm talking with Dawn Garish, a true contemporary maverick. Dawn is a medical doctor and a published writer. She has had seven novels, a collection of poetry, short stories, a non-fiction work, and a memoir published. She has also had five plays and a short film produced and has written for television. Three of her novels have been published in the UK. This publishing journey has not gone unnoticed. Her poem, Blood Delta, won the Dalrow Prize in 2007. Her novel, Trespass, was shortlisted for the Commonwealth Prize in Africa in 2010. Miracle won the EU Sol Plachi Poetry Award in 2011, and What to Do About Ricky won the Short Sharp Story Competition in 2013. Her novel Accident was longlisted for the Barry Ronger Sunday Times Fiction Award in 2018. Her seventh novel, Breaking Milk, came out in 2019, and her next collection of poetry, Disturbance, Taking Note, will be out in November 2020. Dawn is part of the medical humanities movement and a founding member of the Life Writing Collective, where she runs courses in memoir writing and poetry. She's also still a practicing medical doctor living in Cape Town, and she has two adult sons. Dawn's piece in Living While Feminist is called The Risk, and it explores the difficulty of speaking up when those around you say harmful things. In that piece, she says, As a child, I was taught to ignore conflict, to pretend that everything should be nice and fine. I have rebelled against that, seeking to understand those things that disturb me and the world, trying to stand up for what is right. Yet there are moments when I fail, moments when I do nothing but quail. There's a trapped bird in me that is afraid to object, how to protest, how to say what needs to be said in order to be understood and to understand consequences are hard to predict. So today I'm going to be talking to Dawn about speaking up, about writing as healing and about the Life Writing Collective. Welcome Dawn. Hello Jen, thanks very much for inviting me. (laughs) I'm very happy to talk with you. And my first question is about the many facets of your maverick life. How does feminism fit into these multiple overlapping roles that you play? Well my first thought is that we all potentially can be anything you know so fortunately I've not been discouraged in mostly in the things that that have drawn me things that have had energy so I've also been born into the split between the sciences and the arts both of them appeal to me both of them have called me Um, it's a split in myself and in the world and my life feels like this journey towards trying to bring them together in meaningful ways and uh, so, so I've had a foot in all these camps. You know, it's, it's not that I'm just interested in writing either. I'm interested in painting and dance and, you know, um, collage and pottery and music. So, you know, it, it gets to be a very busy life. And, um, and on the sciences, I'm also interested in how we measure, how we understand the truth. You know, the truth can be both um, measurable and intuited. Uh, the truth can also be paradoxical and contradictory. 
So I'm interested in all these aspects of life, which is in fact the human condition um, and the relationship condition. And one of these aspects of that life is friendships and relationships. And your story in Living While Feminist describes a situation where you've gone out to dinner with some friends and you witness two girls dancing in the road, free and happy. And your feeling at that moment is just awe and amazement and joy at the way that these young girls are so confident and so joyful. But one of the men with you makes a comment that many of us will have heard in our lives. I'll have the one on the left immediately claiming ownership of those goals and rendering them for his own consumption. And you say that the emotion that you felt when that happened was quail. Can you tell me about that word, that feeling, and why this moment struck you as important to write about for a feminist collection? When this call came out to write for this collection about the body, and I'm very interested in the body and how it informs us not only because it's the container through which we live, uh, the animal body, but because I think it's a repository of memory of the unconscious of the child. Uh, it's trying to inform us all the time, but we tend to drive around in our heads, you know. So when this call came to write about the body, I had recently had this experience, and that's what jumped to my body, my body-mind, this moment where there was a retraction. The, the power of writing is that you start to discover things or put, put things into words which you didn't have a word for before. Uh, so I was very surprised when this word arrived through my pen on the page, this word quail, and then, you know, the different meanings of quail. So, and it, it felt right. It felt that it's a moment of, for me, of contraction, of making myself smaller, of starting to become invisible uh, in is a protective mechanism you know it's how do I how do I run away from this felt like an attack you know these small moments but they 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 reveal so much about attitude and then what do you do in that moment where on the one hand you want to run away but but actually what one needs to do is to stand firm against that kind of small moment attack. Uh, but then what do you do? How do you stand firm? That's what the, the story explores. And it's interesting to me that you used the words retraction and contraction there, because I think that is what those comments often do. They make us feel very small. Um, and at the table, you say afterwards, you're all, you know, almost, you are almost stunned into silence. And at the dinner table, you say, we sat at the table and ordered and spoke of things that would not disturb anyone. Um, and in the quotes I read in the introduction, you say that you were raised to avoid conflict, which many people are. What do you think the impact of avoiding the need to say what you feel you want to say is on us as creators, as writers, and on our health? Well, it's easier for me to say what I need to say when it's between me and the page, you know, even if, if it finally gets out into the world, you know, you're sitting alone with your own truths, your own honesty, um, trying to express the thing that needs to be expressed. It's when you're actually out in the world with other people, how, what is the best response in this moment? How can I best articulate my distress in such a way that the other person can hear me? Uh, that, that That is an ongoing question because... You know, what are we trying to do? Are we only trying to speak to people who already agree with us? Or are we actually trying to, you know, I think being an activist or being um, bearing advocacy 
you, I mean, the, the task is to attract attention of people who don't, who haven't thought these things through before or haven't felt what you're trying to express in a way that maybe changes behavior or changes the way they think about things. Um, I haven't answered that question properly for myself, um, other than I think it's important to live in such a way, you know, that thing of be the, be the change you want to see. So to, to catch your own moments of all your isms, you know, catch the moment where you yourself are being sexist or you yourself are being racist or ageist or uh, ableist or, or, the, or nationalist. If we, if we can catch it in ourselves and then not, not fall into that trap but behave in a way that is kind and connected uh, towards other people, you know, I think that bearing witness by your behavior is probably the most effective way of, of um, effecting change. And then, and then being able to write about things uh, or dance about things or write plays about things, act, uh, you know, somehow demonstrate other ways of seeing so that somebody who picks up your book maybe has a change of heart, mind, body in that moment. I think sexist jokes are very much a part of what we've learned to call now rape culture, that they're part of a, a world that normalizes the objectification of certain groups and also that excuses sexists from having to learn and to know better. And as you rightly say now, when you're an advocate or when you're an activist, you choose to draw attention to that that abnormality in this the situation where we, we're railing against sexism as feminists, we're saying that we want a world where there isn't any more sexism, where everybody is able to be free, like those two girls in your story dancing in the street. But how do we begin to talk to the person who isn't ready to hear? And do you think that that's an, a useful use of our energy? Well, I think it's an essential part of our energy. Um, always bearing in mind that none of us have got the full story Anyway, you know, none of us have enough self-knowledge to be always decent human beings. But I suppose that's, in the end, for me, is there's two things. The one is, it's very simple, very basic. How do we want to behave towards each other? How would you like to be treated? You know, and surely we would treat other people the way we want to be treated. So it's that deep empathy with somebody else. So... Empathy as a starting point for creating social change. Yes. How else would one do it? So the, uh, the second point is what kind of world are we trying to create? You know, again, paradox and contradiction, which I'm incredibly interested in, comes up for me because, yes, we need to be furious. We need to rage. You know, there's such injustice done in the world. At the same time, if we only rage and are furious, are we not, you know, what world are we creating down the line that's only the result of rage and fury? We, we also need to have other ways of, of approaching this problem of injustice and um, yeah, intolerance and prejudice. So, so we need to look at not only our response, but how are we going to proceed in a way that builds a world that we all where we all feel valued and respected and heard and where we also hear and respect um, each other. So, 
th th those two two things for me that's it although there is a third thing <laughs> and that is um which i must throw in here because i find it such an interesting idea there's this east eastern european philosopher called levinas who I've never, i have to commit, admit i have never read but apparently he said you know he's all about the other and he's all about love and apparently his thing is uh, he doesn't believe in um, standards and principles he says i have no standards and principles which at first when you first hear that you think well that's a bit shocking but what he's really saying is that if you only got if you only lived from standards and principles you might do the most terrible thing in this moment with this person uh, because that's not what's required in order to love yourself and the other person so it requires you to be very present in every moment to, to say to yourself to think through or feel through what is required in this moment with this person in this situation that is the most loving thing i can do the most empathetic the most heartfelt the most related if that makes sense it reminded me of um a philosopher or political theorist Jacques Derrida that I came across when I was at university where he was talking about the incalculability of justice where when you are what you're asking a judge to do in a courtroom is both to hear what the person has done wrong but also the specifics of that person's case and justice is not ignoring the specifics of each person's case justice is taking into account the general rule that we're all supposed to obey but also taking into account the specificity of the individual which is yeah. really a hard position to occupy for a judge and an even harder position to occupy yeah. as you know part of your day-to-day -day life because it really requires that you let go of your ego and you let go of the knee-jerk reaction and the rage and the immediate rejection of someone and instead you ask why do you feel like that you know it's yeah. a much deeper question than just thinking well you're a bastard I'm not talking to you anymore yes. <laughs> moving along keep in mind that we all have blind spots you know so you know we've all got some isms somewhere <laughs> you know I think if we don't know that we are racist sexist ageist nationalist if we don't know that we because we, we're all human beings so we all have the capacity to be these things so we don't know that we are those things we can't catch those moments when we behave badly and correct them you know make corrections and learn from from that i mean i remember it's quite hard to say this but i remember catching myself many years ago thinking of myself a feminist and coming across a blonde receptionist and thinking and assuming that she was not intelligent you know for example that whole stereotype of blonde woman in a low-paid job you know I mean that was quite a moment for me where I realized that I made all sorts of assumptions just because this person was you know in, trapped in that kind of stereotypical role so you know we've got to catch these moments in ourselves and then make auto corrections around this um, get curious about other people get to know who they are and not make it not make assumptions when you feel so certain that you're in the right you know this person has said something very offensive you are the moral high ground here that the opposite of certainty is curiosity and when yeah. you choose to be certain you choose not to be curious and that is the end of learning and I was watching a talk with Neil deGrasse Tyson the other night and he said he was talking about scientists when they're at the frontier of knowledge and he said if you're no longer making mistakes it's pretty safe to assume that you're not at the frontier and it really struck me 
because we live in this world where it is very scary to say the wrong thing, to make a mistake, that we are becoming, we are retreating into the forest of what we already know and we're missing out on the things that we could possibly learn about each other. It's a lovely way of putting it. And and I think mm. that's really, you know, staying humble on some level is quite <laughs> a, an important skill to develop because, you know, I mean, we all have opinions and sometimes our opinions are right and sometimes they're wrong and half the time, you know, if you think back on your life, all the opinions you had which turned out to be wrong, I think you just have to live long enough to realize that, um, you know, half the things you strongly believe in actually you've kind of got the wrong end of the stick, you know, to keep open, keep, as you say, keep curious about, you know, because often behind this bad behavior is just a, a frightened person who's how to access that that frightened person so that they can become more human I don't know so you've got to start with yourself and then maybe you can reach other people you end your piece with saying that perhaps one of the ways to access that frightened human that you speak about in your story would be to send him your story and see whether it starts a conversation I wonder if you did send it and what the result was <laughs> I was hoping you wouldn't ask that <laughs> not yet <laughs> In fact, you know, I did a little bit of research after the writing the piece. I gave it to quite a few people to read and, you know, asking what, what do you think I should do? You know, should I, should I send this piece to this person and then incorporate that into the story or not? And it was interesting. A lot of people said, no, don't send it. It's the piece that's important. It's inquiry that's important, not what the, how the man would respond. And as I intimated in the piece there, I've, I have confronted certain situations with really very heartbreaking results. You know, there, there was one situation where I confronted a man about some bad behavior and his partner sided with, with him and I lost the friendship. So, you know, the, it can be very difficult, these situations. Um, I, I, I'm not skilled enough yet to know how quite to handle these things. But, I, you know, I'm trying to learn, <laughs> put it that way. And maybe one day I will approach him. Um, it, you know, it does smack of a little bit of lack of courage. Because in the end, I mean, how how open can we be with our friends? How much can we be ourselves and stand up for the fullness of who we are? I think a lot about that when I think about friendships that you have over the different stages of your life and how people meet you at a moment in time and that's that moment of you becomes fixed in their imagination and how it can be sometimes surprising to confront this old person or this old version of you that they think you still are, that they hold on to. I suppose that's one of the benefits of having lifelong friendships is really seeing the growth and being around people that can adapt and welcome the, the new growth that you say, the new discoveries that you make about how we can talk to each other. But yes. it is hard. I mean, I find it much harder to to have principled discussions when I feel like someone has really done something wrong with people who are close to me than I do with a stranger because the risk is lower, right? With a stranger, if you, they say something terrible and you call them out and you get into an argument, it doesn't really matter what they think of you or what you think of them. But when it's with someone close to you, that is obviously much more significant. Yeah. But in the end, whenever you try to cut across or try to highlight something that's disturbing, point out something's disturbing, surely in the end it's because you 
you want something to change. You know, this, you want something to shift. It's it, it's not just pro, a protest, a personal protest. It's it's saying, see me, hear me. I, I want to tell you something that's important. You know, to me, but also maybe to other women, other people, and how to communicate that in the most effective way. As I say, it's I suppose it's in that moment with this person in this situation that hopefully one can be so present that you find the right words, that you find the way of doing it. As somebody said, it's not what you say, it's how you say it, which I think is so important. My mom used to say that to me all the time when I was Uh-oh. growing up. <laughs> and it, it was my absolute worst because I'd be like, oh, it's so true, but oh, it's, so, it's such a frustrating thing to say. Well, well it's particularly um, annoying if it's coming from your mother. <laughs> yeah, I probably deserved it though. So. Um, on to your other writing, which there is far too much of to discuss in just one podcast episode. But can you tell me a little bit about your latest novel, Breaking Milk and what you're working on right now. So Breaking Milk has got a big feminist theme in that it's a story of a woman who abandons her um, her job in a lab working as a geneticist and um, a microbiologist. Uh, and she ends up working for industry and they cross an ethical line and she, she decides she cannot follow that path. Even though there's fame and glory and riches ahead, if she cracks the genetic code, she decides to retreat and become, instead of culturing human embryos, she's going to culture culture uh, cheese. So she goes to the Eastern Cape to become a, a goat's milker. <laughs> she's got goats, and to make cheese. And um, it is a bit of a pushback against disgrace, which I found a very disturbing novel in terms of the way that women are presented, um, Lucy, the daughter. Uh, you know, this whole question of can women be independent? Can they farm alone? Um, are men just out to, you know, be violent? And um, so this this question of also in the book, the split between the sciences and the arts, uh, crea- creativity and logic, logos and eros is in the book. Um, what do we do with our clever, clever minds? Um, how do we live? integral integrated lives with the environment uh yeah her, so her path is also about separation and um what does she need to separate from and what does she need to merge with you know where are our connections important when when are they destructive when um when is separation necessary and when is it tragic so there, there are various ways in which those themes get picked up, um, and she's kind of caught between two, well, several men in the book actually. Um, the one is her ex-husband, who un- unfortunately is a misogynist and a womanizer, and you know the serious difficulties there, who had undermined her in the marriage, which is why she left. And then there's um, the the next door neighbor, pig farmer, who's totally in love with her, but has got not got enough spine for her and yet she she tries it out with him it doesn't work out uh, but there's a young man who's gone to the mountains um, for initiation who's the son of the woman who works for her and um, that whole question of mothering mothering and separation and initiation comes into it 
and I can't go into the further details, otherwise I'll give the ending of the book away, but um, she's got her own daughter overseas whom she's separated from. Um, and I've met a lot of women recently who are estranged from their children, and it's a very, it's an interesting and painful thing I wanted to explore. What What is going on there? What is that separation from the mother, from the land, from my own creativity? Because that's another aspect of the feminine, if you want to call it that, you know, uh, eros, creativity. A lot of us are separated from our own creativity. And um, we need to reclaim that as our birthright. So, you know, I tend to write as an exploration. I'm, I'm really against giving easy answers because life isn't like that. So I, I want to open up the discussion around these things. And in the process, I, I often find some of my own, the own, my own answers that I'm looking for. Um, I'm writing the book. Uh, at the moment, I'm busy with a co the collection of poetry that's coming out um, in November, and I've started another memoir. Um, and there are a couple of short pieces for anthologies that uh, that I'm busy with as well. So yeah, rich, lovely life. We're very lucky. <laughs> mm. So one of the, it's interesting that you're speaking about separation and disjuncture in Breaking Milk because it's also one of the focuses of Eloquent Body, which was a book that you wrote several years ago, a nonfiction book about healing and creativity and trying to bring the sciences and the creative together. Can you tell listeners who maybe haven't heard of this book a little bit about it and why you decided to write it? Well, I got an uh, invitation in my inbox several years ago, about 2010, saying, this is from Anfassa, um, asking for applications for a bursary to write a, not, a work of nonfiction. I'd never done nonfiction before. So I immediately deleted it because I'm not a nonfiction writer. And then I went to bed that night and it wouldn't leave me alone. And I realized that I'd been collecting information about the creative process for a long time and the split between the sciences and the arts. And, uh, and I've written bits and pieces about my own life, my own splits between my science and my art part of myself. Uh, and I suddenly leapt out of bed and started writing a proposal. And then Eloquent Body came out of that. So it made me really go, go and be proactive about researching what the scientists, what the artists have to say about how to manage your life better, about what, what is well-being. Um, about the role that creativity plays in helping us manage our anxiety, living more creatively. And it's really, it's very powerful, very important work. I'm part of, now part of the medical humanities movement, which is international movement, where the arts, arts the science, social sciences are having conversations with the health sciences around well-being. You know, for too long we have left out the arts, thinking it's just a hobby and a pastime, and if I were president, I would ban those two words. We need to value our creativity because it's an essential part of our mental health, which affects our physical health, which affects our health, with our relationship with the environment, our environmental health. So, so regular creative practice, and this is the thesis of the book, regular creative practice is not about, it's not primarily about fame, fortune, um, instant gratification, you know, getting your name out into the world, um, being writing the next best novel. It's primarily about your own health, 
it's like somebody said, oh, but I haven't got, haven't got enough time. You know, I, I run courses in writing and for the Life Writing Collective, and you know, it often comes up. People say, oh, I haven't got time, and it's you know, and and I do understand that, but you know, I find myself saying to somebody, you always have time to brush your teeth, because you know, if you don't, <laughs> it's going to lead to ill health, um, ill dental health. So it's opening that little space, even if it's a, writing a haiku a day, opening up that space just to dip into one's own creative well and find it's like medita meditative practice. I think these, these things are, are related. They overlap. The, the kind of attention you bring to creativity and the kind of attention you bring to meditation, I, I think that they, they produce similar effects assuming that you have dealt with your inner critic, which is a whole other topic, because the inner critic stops you and makes you very anxious around even thinking a creative thought, let alone putting it on the page or on the canvas or on the dance floor. Um, but, you know, this is the other aspect of femininity, you know, not to split up uh, fem feminism as being owned by women, you know, obviously, that anybody can be a feminist, but this whole question of how we take on how we stand up to logos as being the answer to the world, you know, logic and the rational, that for too long that has been seen, people think that if we can just work this out with pros and cons and, like, you know, thinking it through, we can find the solutions. Well, actually, we really, really need to get in touch with the images and narratives that drive our lives. I know this is a doctor, you know, people don't really respond to the logos or the, or the argument, the facts in front of them. It's, they're surprisingly unhelpful to change behavior. And the neuroscientists are now saying that it's the image and the narrative you're telling yourself underneath the radar of your own understanding. So you don't even know you're telling yourself the story, and yet it's completely influencing your behavior uh, towards behavior that's often self-destructive. Self so we need that, um, that other side, the creative uh, eros side to help us understand who we are and why we do the things we do so that we can become more connected, more related, more integrated. Um, so this is the value of creativity, which I think is lost when we lose feminism, when we lose the, the female aspect of the human condition and go for the more masculine logos side of things. We lose that essential aspect of, of creative of you know a creative living yeah so you've been facilitating life writing courses for the last decade and in 2017 you founded the life writing collective to facilitate these creative processes why did you decide to found an organization and for listeners who haven't heard of the life writing collective what is it and where can they find out more well, I was very lucky in that, you know, you just got to live long enough, as I say, and your life starts coming together in strange ways. So I was, I've always been a writer. I ended up in medicine, you know, with a split between the sciences and the arts. And one day I was actually writing Eloquent Body at the time and Anne Schuster, who, who was, um, I mean, she's passed now, but she, she was ill at the time and she taught her creative writing and she had a fully booked memoir course and she got hold of me and she said, can you take over this course? Um, I'm not well enough to run it. And I nearly said no. Fortunately, I said yes, that little voice in your, in your head that knows better than you do. I said yes, okay. So I ran that course. It's changed my life completely. I've met the most amazing people through doing this work. 
uh, I've kind of found my my path of heart. Um, so so I've been running so for the last 10, 12 years. I've been running courses to help people write about their experiences, about their lives, uh, in in such a way that they revisit the story they're telling themselves, that they uh, deal with that inner critic that that stops you not only in your writing but in living your most creative life, uh, to express themselves better, to grow confidence, um, to to take their creativity and their physical selves seriously, to become more observant, to become more sensory, sensate, to live more in the now, um, to grow community and compassion and tolerance, and um, you know, and to be advocates and um, and activists in the world, because no matter what your story is, your very personal story, you, you will be telling something about the human condition that others need to hear, and particularly other people who are not necessarily from your culture, from your religion, from your gender, from your, you know, whatever the, the divide is, we need to hear each other's stories so that we can, you know, we can... Um, you, we can stop being so alienated from each other or so judgmental of each other. Uh, so, you know, the work has been, it's opened my heart and I've seen it open other people's hearts, not, not you know, primarily for them, to themselves. I mean, for starters, we've got to grow compassion for ourselves and then for each other. And um, so somebody who came on the course said, well, why don't we start a non-profit organization? Because I was saying to her, you know, I wish these stories could get published, incredible stories coming out of the, out of the work, out of the workshop. Um, and also I wanted more sponsored people on the courses so to get diversity in the room. We could, so we could have all, all Southern African voices in the room. And so we raised funds and we're still going three years later, scraping along with minimal funding, but it's been an amazing um, initiative. And I've, as I say, I've met the most wonderful people, including yourself, Jen. <laughs> Um, so, yeah, anybody who wants to grow their writing capacity as a tool for mental health and self-expression and community, uh, please go and have a look at our website, www.lifewriting.com, R-I-G-H-T-I-N-G, uh, because you write about your life in order to write your life like a yacht, like a boat. Um, yeah, it's. It, I'm, I'm just so grateful because this is a medical humanities initiative that it brings together uh, this this question of well-being and the arts, which is what I've been searching for anyway. And it brings together people from all walks of life, so that we can bridge all the things that have hurt us. Um, you know, well, not all, but, you know, make some contribution towards healing the wounds in this country and in ourselves. I took the memoir writing course last year in February and I found it so transformative and wonderful and I subsequently recommended it to everyone I know. And one of the, well, two important things, the one is that for people who are worried that they won't be able to afford these courses, there is funding available, which is provided for by other writers who have done the courses and have enjoyed them. And the second is that there's also follow-up groups, which are incredibly valuable spaces to go and share your writing. Why did you guys decide to build follow-up groups into the, the community of the Life Writing Collective? Mm, good question. So initially I didn't do that right in the beginning before it was the LRC. And then I realized that 
you know, you can have a once-off experience. We, we often do that. We go on a workshop, we have a once-off experience. It's deeply moving. I'm not just talking about writing. I'm talking about any kind of workshop that is effective. But actually, it's the ongoing practice. I mean, it's like meditation. You, know, you can meditate once and have an experience, but actually you need to meditate frequently to get the benefit. And it's the same with any creative practice. Regular creative practice, you deepen your, your um, well, you, you grow your skills, you deepen your, um, what you get out of it, you know, uh, your experience of, you know, it's like, it's like you're spiraling in on something. I think this is the task of life in a sense. You know, you can loop round and round the same old racetrack. Or you can spiral in on the mystery of who am I? What am I doing here? What is this thing called life? Uh, how can I be effective in the world? How can I live the best, most creative life? You know, I mean, these answers, the answers to those are, are slippery, you know, slip away from us. But we can spiral in closer and closer. And I think that creative practice, regular creative practice helps us to do that. But again, you know, you can't get closer to the answer without practicing it regularly. It's, I mean, it's like... Running. You're never going to be a good runner unless you run often. Um, so there's that aspect. And, and because we've got this terrible inner critic that says, oh, you're wasting your time and you'll never make any money and um, you know people are going to laugh at you and your work's not very good anyway and all those things that we have in our heads, the regular creative practice, meeting with a group, you've got a deadline, which helps, and you've got the community that give you feedback. And often their feedback is very different from the feedback in your own head from that terrible inner critic who really is undermining you. So over time, that that terrible voice that's critical of everything that you do gets softer and softer. And in the end, it can turn into a useful editor rather than an undermining critic because of the modifying and modulating influence of other people giving you honest, related, thoughtful feedback on your own work. So that's what happens in the follow-up groups. Once you've done a course and you've got the basic tools of how to write from a sensory point of view, how to write scenes, um, different points of view, how to grow character, uh, how to write from, from the body and not from your thoughts, um, how to trust that the writing knows where it wants to go rather than feeling that you have to construct it all you know, um, out of your thinking brain. So once you've got all those skills in place, then com coming to the courses and reading your work, even if it's a very rough draft, especially if it's a rough draft. I mean, I encourage people to bring the things that you're struggling with, bring the things that you think aren't working. So it also helps to overcome that thing of, oh, I can only read things that are perfect, which is absolute, you know nonsense because I mean, obviously nothing's perfect first of all and anyway we're bringing things so that we can learn and very often people who think that they've edited something that's really really perfect it often is tight and has lost life whereas a really really raw piece of writing which you think is full of mistakes often has an energy that uh, that really works and really excites the person who's listening to it so we're very bad judges of our own uh, work and we need we need community and relationship to help us um, do what we do better. I love that, and I um I have been to a, f a few of the follow up groups myself, and I found them to be as warm and nourishing and useful for my writing as the original course was. So I can really attest to their value. Um, 
have a few last questions that I'm asking everybody who comes on the podcast. The yeah. first is, do you have a book that you have read or engaged with that has inspired your feminism? One book. <laughs> Jen, <laughs> well, I thought you might ask that question. And, you know, I was actually thinking about the first books I read that woke me up. And I have to say it's Virginia Woolf and Doris Lessing. Those two writers woke me up to the body. And I think, and I read recently, I can't remember who said this, but if you are in touch with your body, you're in touch with the environment. Because it's our animal bodies that we have so ignored and so abused, actually, um, very often. You know, our culture encourages us to ignore our bodies and treat them badly, actually. So it's the only home we have, actually, until we die. That and the, and the earth. So I'm interested in that thing of how do we wake up to our bodies um, in a way that is respectful and uh, curious and paying attention to what the body needs, what the body, this beautiful animal body, what do we do? You know, How do we live through this body? Um, yeah, so those are the two writers that woke me up long ago. I recently reread um, A Room of One's Own of Virginia Woolf, and I have to say it's just fantastic. It's nice when you can revisit a book and find new things that delight you, but also the reason that you were delighted in the first place. Yeah. Um, it's interesting to me that you talk about this, you know, that our body is our own and only home which is really quite a project of feminism is to learn to be unconditional with our love of ourselves, to say that the things that have made us feel terrible about ourselves is largely structural and systemic and designed so that we continue to perform in particular ways. So I love that you've chosen two writers who have located the body as a project, as a site, as a, as a home um, in their words. I think that's really beautiful. And my second to last question is, do you have a quote that you live by or that inspires you? Okay, this is very edgy, but I'm going to say it for myself. Something that's really helped me is just to say when I'm feeling distressed, is to say, Dawn, I love you. Okay, so that's extremely personal. and uh, But there you are, I'm going to put it out there. You know, I mean, I think that is one of the things what we have to do is to learn to love ourselves. And, and it's like, it can be like a mantra. Mantras can be helpful, you know, a repeated refrain. And if you, the 12-step program says fake it till you make it, which I thought was horrific when I first heard it. But actually, it's that thing of if you say it often enough, Dawn, I love you, then maybe one day you will, you know, <laughs> love yourself. And without that, it's very hard to love anybody else, I think. That's a big practice of um, yoga as well, is to do self-love and self-compassion practices and of meditation. So I think it ties very nicely to feminism that, you know, you have yeah. to start with you first to change the world, start at home, start with yourself. And I think it's very true. I love that you say that you love yourself. I think that's amazing. Thank you. Okay, here's another one that I love. Mm, it comes from a poem. Oh, man, I can't remember the poet's name. But there. It, <laughs> I can Google it. Am I allowed to quote somebody without remembering their name? So yeah. it goes, um, if we're not supposed to dance, why all this music? It's called To Be Alive by Gregory Orr. Thank you. 
And my final question to you today is, do you have advice for other feminists, other writers, other human beings on their journey? Oh, I mean, I'm saying this to myself as well. Just keep up the practice. Keep paying attention. Um, keep being curious. Uh, and and also, I think, very important um, that paradox and contradiction are part of the creative process. They are the it's, so it's the antithesis to the logical, rational aspect of the human condition. To live with paradox and contradiction um, is an anathema to that part of the brain, but it actually is part of the creative brain. And if we can all learn to live with paradox and contradiction, then we don't have to be so reactive. We don't have to be right all the time. We don't have to you know, fight to the death over something that maybe is not that important. Um, yeah, maybe we can be more patient, more kind, maybe. Having said that, you know, living both, the paradox and contradiction of feeling absolutely furious and compassionate at the same time. Maybe, I don't know, I'm just throwing this out as an idea that I'm interested in. To live in the difficulty and discomfort and just keep going. Yeah. Mm. Thank you so much for talking with me today, Dawn, and for the work that you're doing in your writing workshops. It is a healing space for so many people, and I think the book that has been put out as well is fantastic for that. Um, so thank you for the work that you do, and also thank you for being a medical doctor in the time of global pandemic. Mm -hmm. I'm sure it's not been easy, but your work is appreciated. Thank you so much, Jen. I really appreciate this work that you're doing. Very important. Mm -hmm. Thanks so much for tuning into this week's episode of Living While Feminist with me, Jen Thorpe. Please do tune in next week to hear more from feminists about their lives and experiences. Take care of yourselves.